Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and on this episode of the Your Life, Your Term show, we have on Neil Winokur and Jesse Berger. Neil is the author of The Grumpy Accountant, One Fed Up Tax Pro's Practical Plan to Fix Canada's Senselessly Complicated Tax System. You couldn't speak more directly to our hearts when you talk this way. So when we saw this book, and it was actually Jesse who introduced us to Neil, um, when we saw the title of this book, we immediately knew that Neil was going to be a great fit to come on the Your Life, Your Term show. So we brought him on. Jesse's on. If you're not familiar with Jesse, Jesse has been on the Your Life, Your Term show multiple times already. He's the author of Magic Internet Money, a book about Bitcoin. So both himself and Neil are on this episode. We're here to talk about Canada's tax code and get Neil's thoughts on what's going on in the tax system. He has some really great ideas. They're pretty, some of them are pretty obvious ideas and pretty simple ideas, but I think that's what makes them so great because it's some things that I had never thought of before. And I didn't know about the tax system in some other areas around the world until I read The Grumpy Accountant. So if you want a good book on just to get you thinking about the tax code, as I'm saying that, I'm not sure how many people are excited to read about the tax code, but I'm excited to read about the tax code. So if you are like us and you want some information on this stuff, check out his book, The Grumpy Accountant. Um, You can find it on Amazon. Actually, his URL is mentioned in the episode at the end of the episode and in the show notes. I will hand out that URL in the Twitter handles and the, and the whole bit. So I think you're going to have a really uh, fun time listening to this. Both Neil and Jesse are both passionate about what they talk about. Am I, can't, am I speaking intelligently here? They're both passionate about what they speak of. Maybe that's better. And uh, just a great chat. Love people who are this excited about what they're talking about. So definitely an enjoyable show. And if you are listening to this and you want some real estate information on how to get into the real estate market as an investor, is it a good time? You see property prices going up the way they're going up. Will it continue? If you want some information to provide you some context on how to make these decisions, you can pick up one of our books or one of our reports or come to our 90-minute introductory introductory training class and you can get access to all of those things at this URL. It's rockstarinnercircle.com. That's www.rockstarinnercircle.com. You can get access to our reports, our books, our free training class. And that training class, we really try to give all the information we possibly can in that 90 minutes. And we stick around to do a live Q&A afterwards. And some people will ask us like, hey guys, why are you giving away all this free information? Well, there is a very selfish motive. We are thinking that if we give away a lot of good information, maybe one day you'll do business with us. So that's why we're doing it. And I shouldn't say that it's just that. We really are trying to help Canadians and people locally here invest in real estate and understand how to do it. Nick and I could not get any good local information and we couldn't get anyone to really help us who was really an investor at heart when we were starting. So this is, this whole thing is a bit of a passion project for us. So it comes out of maybe a place of frustration when I quit my job and Nick quit his job and we couldn't find people to help us. And now it's really turned into something more. So we are feel blessed and grateful to be able to do this kind of stuff. So you can get all that information from us at rockstarinnercircle.com. That's enough with this intro. Let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. Okay, we are live with Neil. Neil, how do I pronounce your last name properly? Winokur. Winokur, Neil Winokur and Jesse Berger. And Jesse, how did we get here? 
how did, how the heck are you starting to take over our podcast? Because now you're, you're saying who we should interview and stuff. So yeah, you take it away. How did we get to this point? Please share. Well, you know, everything has to start with Greg Foss, right? That's, that, that's the real square one. That's the real Genesis block of all this. But um, no, you know, I came on the show, we were chatting. Um, obviously, I was talking about my book, Magic Internet Money, a book about Bitcoin. Um, but I learned having come on your show that, you know, Tom and Nick at Rockstar are, are not just here to talk about real estate, that, you know, you guys care deeply about your clients, about their well-being, about them taking charge of their future. Um, and so Neil and I have known each other for quite some time. His brother-in-law is a good friend of mine. And we basically shared uh, the book writing journey together. Neil was uh, maybe a month or two ahead of me at all points um, along our journey, but we were both writing our books around the same time. And so we would constantly sort of talk and exchange notes and things. Um, and I will pass it over to Neil Winokur to introduce his book and what um, it's all about. So Neil, over to you. And, and Neil, just before you do, I'll just hold up both your books here, the, both, both the books right there side by side. And I just want you to know, that uh, Jesse, we still, there's probably only about approximately 10. Yeah, there we go. They're yeah, everywhere. They're go. everywhere. I have 10, 10 copies of your book in our office left. So if someone's listening to this and you're in the Oakville area and you want a copy of Magic Internet Money, Jesse's book, a book about Bitcoin, we have about 10 copies left that we can hand out. Um, so just I'll throw that out there just so, so everybody's aware we've, we've, we have random people from around Toronto, which is amazing. I'm not complaining, uh, you know, picking it, picking up the book. Um, so it's, my, it's super my, cool. my other unofficial distribution center aside from Amazon. Yeah. You have an Oakville distribution location. Um, but sorry, Neil, take Yeah. Take us away. How did, how did this book come to be? Yeah. So first of all, let me apologize for my haircut because I, I haven't had a haircut in a really long time. Um, but yeah, the book came to be, look, I started working as an accountant over 10 years ago. First, I did the few, the three years, three, four years of articling, right? And then once I got my designation, I started up on my own practice because I hated every job I ever had. So I thought, okay, I can't work for other people. This isn't working. I'm going to try it on my own. And the first few years, it was very exciting. I'm starting my own small business. This is great. I love it. But then very quickly, once you really understand how our tax system works, and how antiquated it is and complicated and horrible and frustrating it is. And it's basically a nightmare. It's a horror show. And it made me really, really frustrated. Like every, what I really came to realize was that every single thing that I do in my work day is completely unnecessary. My job filing people's tax returns, the idea that people need to hire a tax filing professional in and of itself, that is a ridiculous idea. And it shows that there's something fundamentally inherently wrong with our tax system. And I really started to um, really hate what I do, like in my daily job. And that's not a good feeling. And I would complain every day to my wife. After my workday, I would just complain and she had enough. And she said, stop complaining to me. Why don't you do something about it? Why don't you write, blog, write some articles? And I thought that was a great idea. It would be a good outlet for me. So I started to write. I would write articles and, and emails to all my clients, basically complaining about the tax system. And I got some good feedback. And I started to realize this isn't just a few articles. There's, there's enough material here for a whole book. 
I mean, at, or in more than one book. Like I, I, I left out a lot in this book that I really wanted to say. There's, so uh, that's really how the book started. The process started a few years ago, just collecting all my thoughts about how horrible and how much I hate our tax system and ideas on how to fix it. Practical, simple ideas on how to simplify the system which already exists in other countries. I'm sure we can get into that of, of what, that, what a simple tax system could look like. But my goal is that I want my job to no longer exist. There should be no such thing as tax accountants. We'll still need other types of accounting. Accounting is a very important function for society. But the idea that you have thousands and thousands of people, tax lawyers and tax accountants and some of the best minds in the country, not, not me, but some of the real tax specialists and, <laughs> And tax lawyers, the best ones in the country, are their, 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 their talents and their intelligence is being wasted on helping people minimize their tax bills. It's ridiculous. Why don't we just have a simple, like, you know, we can get into how, how it could work. But basically, our tax system is a nightmare. And I felt I could no longer stand idly by and just watch as millions, literally millions of Canes suffer every single year in trying to comply with our tax system. It really bothered me. And every night I would lose sleep. I Every night I, I lay awake in bed and this is what's going through my mind. You were pissed off. We love it. That's why yeah. we started Rockstar because we were pissed off. Yeah. I feel like Jesse wrote his book because Jesse, I don't mean to speak for you, but I feel like you probably wrote that book because you were pissed off about money and, and, and the money system. So I think a lot of great things come from anger and frustration. And it's actually something, Neil, that we, we, we explain to a lot of our clients who want to start their own business. We're like, hey, so you don't have to be feeling passionate about everything all the time. You know, we've all been sold that you should follow your passion. Sometimes the greatest energy comes from frustration and anger. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, and I kind of, it can lead to positivity. So it's, I feel like you going to sleep at night, all angry and frustrated. That's how I, I, I felt the same way. It's why we started yeah. rockstar trying to I help. I feel like, I feel like everything Neil said, if you just replace tax system with money system, <laughs> you know, it's, it's the same sentiment for me, right? It's, I see all these frustrations, all these like, you know, complexities that are totally unnecessary that just confuse people that make us less efficient and, you know, if we fix the money system, then we would just, we could simplify a lot of things. If we had a simple money system, we would have just the better outcomes, right? And that's obviously the whole premise of my book is that yeah. fix the money, fix the world. Um, but the parallels between mine and Neil's work um, are, I think, very interesting. And, and you know, I'm, I think it'll be fun to explore it. Yeah, this, you uh, could, so we'll rename here. this to the three pissed off people. And here we go, <laughs> but uh, in, in a positive way. But Neil, you for context, because it's yeah. right at the introduction of your book, you have this sentence in here. It says 90% of taxpayers in England, 87% of taxpayers in Denmark, 74% of taxpayers in Sweden do not have to file tax re- returns. In Estonia, it takes the average person five minutes to file their tax return. New Zealand has become the master of tax reform. So can you give Canadians some context of our tax system compared to some of these others? Because I don't think most of us are aware. Right. Yeah. See, Canada has this problem. We only compare ourselves to the United States. So the, the perfect example of that is healthcare. Canadian healthcare. We don't realize there's so many different models across the world of how to run a healthcare system, but we think there's only the Canada model or the U.S. model, but there's so many other ways, right? And tax system is the same thing. Um, before I answer your question, I just want to mention, it's so funny that you say that, that a lot of the material for, for this book or for what you're doing, what Jesse did, comes from this anger and frustration. I remember watching an interview with Jerry Seinfeld, who's my favorite comedian, 
where he actually said stand, the, the best comedians, stand-up comedians, are ones who are always frustrated and angry at the world because they see what's wrong and then they can point it out through comedy, right? So it, 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 that just um, entered my mind when you said that. So I wanted to mention that. Um, but yeah, for some context, the way these other countries manage their tax systems, like for example, in the UK, where 90% of taxpayers like don't even have to file a tax return. It's such a foreign idea to Canadians because in Canada, every single individual has to file a tax return every year. Even if you have zero income, if you want to receive the benefits you're entitled to, like if you have zero income, you're entitled to receive GST credits. If you have children, kind of child benefits, you still have to file a return. So what they do in the UK is basically if you're an employee, okay, so self-employed people still have to file. But if you're an employee, which is the majority of people, your T4, that is your tax return. That's it. Because, and think about it here in Canada, when if you're an employee at a company, you get a T4 slip, when your employer gives you your T4, they file it to the CRA. The CRA already has your T4 slip. So why do you have to file a tax return where you have to enter your T4 information into a tax return and then file that to the CRA? The CRA already has the exact same information. In fact, if you make a mistake in putting your T4 into your tax return, the CRA will automatically correct it. So why are we forcing millions, tens of millions of Canadians to undergo this exercise? And the reason is because our tax system has all these deductions and credits. There's like 120 different tax deductions and tax credits that people are eligible to claim. And nobody knows which ones they're eligible for. And they change every year based on whichever political party's in power. So like, but in these other countries, what they do is they have a lot less deductions and credits and then maybe they have a lower tax rate. So the tax return is much simpler. But what they do in the UK and some of these other countries is your employer basically follows your tax return for you, but it's just a T4 slip. So that's the model that I think we should be looking to. The, um, down south in the US, their tax system actually can be more complicated than ours because most states, like 43 out of 50 states, you have to file a state income tax return and a federal tax return. Whereas here you file one tax return, federal and provincial, it's combined, except for Quebec. In Quebec, they still have to file one to CRA and one to Revenue Quebec. Um, but yeah, our tax system is way too complicated. These European countries have, have redesigned their tax systems to be much simpler for the vast majority of people. And just to comment on the U.S., when I was, when you know, Nick and I own a place in, over in Croatia, and when we opened a bank account over there, they asked us if we were American citizens. Right. And if we were American citizens, they wanted no part of opening up bank accounts. Mm. Because and when I asked them, they said, hey, just too complicated with the IRS. Yeah. So I was like, yeah. holy smokes, the IRS's yeah. reach is long. Oh, if, yeah. If they're worried about opening bank accounts in Croatia. Yeah. Um, so thankfully, we're Canadians and, you you know, we can kind of do that a little bit easier. And I thought, geez, uh, you know, IRS is pretty, pretty powerful. But I want to yeah. I want you to comment on just the birth of taxes, because in your book at the beginning here, you talk about where taxes come from and what the original plan or goal of those ta that tax system was. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So in Canada the income tax came into effect in 1917. So from 1867 
1917, the first 50 years of, in Canada, there was no federal income tax. Now, a few of the provinces might have had very modest income taxes, but federally, there was no income tax for the first 50 years until 1917. And the federal government raised money basically through tariffs and today what we would call sales taxes, basically, which in theory are, are, are a lot simpler um, for people to comply with. So 1917, World War I is raging on. The government is mm. bankrupt. They're indebted. They have a lot of debt for this war. So they passed legislation called the Income War Measures Act. Okay, it was, it was a piece of legislation that was 11 pages long. Today, the Income Tax Act is over 3,000 pages. Okay, so in 1917, it was Income War Measures Act, 11 pages. It only applied income tax to the top 2%. I love Bernie Sanders when he says the top 1%. So in 1917, the income tax only applied, you only had to file a tax return and pay if you were in the top 2% of income earners. Today in Canada, I think that would be over like 120 or 150,000 of income. I forget the exact number, um, or maybe it's a bit lower than that. But the point is that people below, the bottom 98%, didn't have to pay a cent and they didn't even have to file a tax return. And it was supposed to be a temporary measure. As soon as the war was over and the government debts from the war were paid off, they were supposed to end the, that legislation. It was supposed to expire. There was vigorous debate in parliament at that time after the war, whether they would keep it or not. Of course, we know what happened. They kept it. But today- well, Neil, you've, you've heard the expression before. Uh, there's, no, there's nothing as permanent as a temporary government program, right? Exactly. Oh my God. And that's like, think about CERB. The past year we've had CERB and we have the new, the three benefits that replace CERB right now. And many on, you know, from a certain political viewpoint are saying this should be converted to a universal uh, permanent basic income. So what started out as a temporary program served to help people during a pandemic and emergency. Now they want to make permanent. So that's a very good point. Um, the, the income tax was supposed to be temporary to fund the war. And then it was supposed to be gone. Uh, we have it today, but today everyone has to file a tax return. Even those with zero income, she'll, uh, I recommend everyone file as soon as they turn 19 years old, because even if you're 19 and you have zero income, you automatically qualify for GST credits as soon as you turn 19 years old. So there's really no reason not to file. Um, and everyone basically, the, you start paying income tax as soon as you hit more than $13,800 of income, you start paying income tax. So that's very low. That's actually lower. Like, um, Statistics Canada publishes every year what they call a low income cutoff, which is basically like the poverty line in Canada. So if you have an individual income below approximately $20,000, $22,000, you're considered living below the poverty line. But our income tax, you start paying income tax as soon as you hit $14,000 of income, which technically is below Statistics Canada, what they consider to be um, basically under the poverty line. So it's, it's, it's gotten way out of hand. Um, so that's a bit of the history. And what's interesting that I think Jesse will, will like this in terms of money is that in the United States, the income tax began in 1913. I was waiting to say that too. And it was the exact same legislation when the Federal yeah. Reserve was created. When, that's when they, absolutely right. Yeah. When, because the interest that the government would collect from the income tax would go to pay the interest to the Federal Reserve. So I'm sure Jesse could talk more about that. But in Canada... We waited 
four more years. So the U.S. started their income tax in 1913, which means from 1776 to 1913, there was no income tax. It was considered like unconstitutional. Um, <laughs> well, it's also just immoral to tax income, right? If you think about it, you know, if I trade, uh, you know, dollars, gold, whatever, any kind, any form of value for my labor, yeah. that's a fair trade. I give one, someone returns one to me in a different form, right? It's just a one for one trade. Why does a third party, the government, need to come in between that and say, you two people having this perfectly fair exchange, I need to cut it out of action. Like, why do right. they have to come into that, right? We can they do taxes a yeah. in, a, in a much more moral way and in, in a way that is much more, um, you know, aligned with how we should be incentivizing society. But that's, yeah. you know, I think we're a long way off of seeing that in Canada. I would, you know, start with just some of the basic reforms that Neil proposes in his book. Um, but just the mm -hmm. concept, I think one thing we, we honestly never, ever think about is the morality of taxes, of why we do things. Um, I remember once seeing a long time ago, a funny meme where uh, I think it was Tom Woods. I don't know if you know who Tom Woods is. He's, a, he's an Austrian economist based in the US. Yeah. Um, where he goes, oh, well, if taxing cigarettes is meant to deter smoking, then does taxing income deter working? I just made that you know, like a, sim a simple thought, ex like thought experiment right. like that. Exactly. Snaps I, you right away. I actually just created that same meme in my uh, social media marketing. I made a meme that had, um, because carbon taxes are in the news now, um, the carbon tax is increasing in 2021 in Canada, the federal carbon tax. And so I, I made a meme exactly the same. If, if carbon taxes are supposed to discourage the idea of carbon dioxide being released into the atmosphere and supposed to change our behavior. Well, are income taxes supposed to discourage yeah. people from earning income, right? I, and, I, um, for the record, I haven't seen Neil's thing. I was <laughs> yeah. uh, referring no, to what I'd seen years ago, but the principle, yeah, it's the same. The exactly. yeah. So I think, you, yeah, Neil, I, I want you to outline what you where you think we, how we should structure the tax system. I just like you to, to, to say that, but before you do, and, I, and I'm going to jump ahead here for a second. So we have to get back to like your next step or what you think the tax system, how it should be structured. Here's just my little thought experiment for you both. So let's, I think that between the three of us, we can probably assume that systems broken, tax systems, probably broken money systems, broken, it's broken. So then, and, and this is going, Neil, to your comment on CERB, then part of me is like, okay, if the system's broken and we're going to go to this transition to something new, and maybe Bitcoin will be the basis of it, maybe it won't, who knows? I think, I think a lot of us think Bitcoin's going to be involved in some capacity, let's face, face it. If we are going from here to there, does universal basic income serve this weird positive need because I've always been against universal basic income but I'm like okay if the system's broken and we can somehow help people get assets buy some if, if you're not a bitcoin person buy gold at least you know whatever I just want people to help themselves look into bitcoin do we shove some universal basic income into the system to help people transition from from here to there knowing that the universal basic income will likely help accelerate breaking the system but maybe the people who have no money, somehow that helps them get over the hump to something new. And it would require them to do useful things with the money, buy assets, you know, save some of it in good quality money, like Bitcoin. Or is that just crazy thinking to you guys? And because a few years ago, I would think that was crazy thinking, like, forget it. We can't have universal basic income. This is just going to make everything worse. It's going to be printing more money. We're going to have more deficits, more debt. When I say that, what, what comes to mind for each of you? I'm just curious. 
And I, I'm not trying to say that I have the right answer. I'm thinking properly here. I'm just curious to what you guys think. Um, so it, it really depends like on the nature of it. So like my, my personal opinion, if you have universal basic income, I don't think that's necessary because universal means every single person. So even if you're, you have $500,000 of income every year, you would still get universal. That doesn't make sense. So what I would call it is a guaranteed minimum income or a, a basic income, but not universal, right? Because not everyone needs it. In fact, most people don't need it, right? So um, I would call it, and that's what I talk about in my book is a guaranteed income, which in Canada, and this is the point I try to make in, in my book, we already basically have it. So for example, 65 years, if you're 65 years or older in Canada and your income is below a certain level, you're eligible for what's called the Guaranteed Income Supplement, GIS. This already exists in Canada for those who are 65 or older. And it's tax-free payments to senior citizens 65 or older below a certain level of income. So now if you're under 60, by the way, 65 years or older also, uh, people are eligible for the old age security, which is taxable. Okay. So once your income is above $79,000, your old age security gets clawed back. Right. And it's taxable income, but because of guaranteed income supplement and old age security, basically Canada has a pretty good um, statistics on seniors living in poverty. We've lifted a lot of seniors out of poverty. So there is something to say for this. Now, the idea that government should be, a charity, that's a whole other philosophical question, right? Like, I think I, I think we could make a strong argument that government shouldn't be involved in this and maybe it should be left to local communities to take care of their own and, you know, but people fall through the cracks. So that's a whole other kind of other question. What's the role for government? Um, but for people below 65 years or older, and I talk about this in my book, the, the government right now spends $25 billion a year on Canada child benefits, which when you think about it, it's based on your income, right? So as your family income goes up, your child benefit goes down. We also spend $5 billion a year on GST credits. So you have $30 billion on GST credits and Canada child benefits and old age security and guaranteed income supplement equal another $50 billion. So that's $80 billion. This is all pre-COVID. During COVID, the amounts went up, obviously. But pre this is so even pre-COVID, the government um, is spending $80 billion a year out of a budget of $300 billion, this is just federally, on direct transfers of cash to individuals, okay? So $80 billion out of a $300 billion budget. If we, tar if we took that $80 billion and retarget it better to people who really need it, like Canada Child Benefits, my wife and I receive $100 a month in Canada Child Benefits because we have one kid. It's ridiculous. We don't need that money. We're just, I, I pay like $25,000 of income tax every year or more. So the government's giving me back $100 a month. Just lower my income tax bill and don't hand out money, right? So I think when we talk about this, it's helpful to look at actual facts and numbers from the actual government budgets to see like we're already spending this money. We're, we're, we already effectively do have a basic income in the form of Canada child benefits, GST credits, old age security, guaranteed income supplement. So they could just retarget it better. Um, but anyway, so th those are my two cents on it, looking at the actual budget that, and, and Sir, now CERB, there's a lot to say about what the government did because they botched it. A lot of people were receiving CERB that didn't need it. Okay. Like 
it doesn't because CERB was not based on family income. It was based on your own individual income. So I have clients where like one spouse has $250,000 of your income and the other spouse is receiving CERB. Give me a break. And, 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 and they were in fact eligible because they happened to receive EI benefits in the previous year or they had you know, $10,000 to $5,000 of income in the previous year. Now, does that family really need CERB? Like, they don't need it. Of course they don't need it. And isn't CERB, for the people who did need it, isn't it taxable? Yeah, it's taxable. Which, But I actually think that makes sense because it's a way for the government to recover money that from people who didn't really need it. Yeah, no, sure. From people who didn't need it, from the people who needed it, how many people know they're going to pay tax on that money? That's a big problem. I wrote an article about that. That was published in the Financial Post and the National Post back in March when they first came out with the idea for CERB. They originally proposed two different types of CERB and it was really complicated. And I read a whole article about it. And I also wrote in the article, when CERB first came out, the government didn't even say, this is how incompetent our government is. They didn't even (laughs) say if it was taxable or not. And of course, they didn't withhold tax at source. Like when you get EI, if someone's on EI, maternity benefits or whatever, they actually withhold tax. Right. So now they don't withhold enough. They only withhold 10% most of the time. And that's not enough. So people still owe tax. This is going to be a big problem as we come into tax season this year for 2020 tax filing. Nobody saved money from their CERB to set aside for tax. It's going to be a complete mess. And the new benefits that have replaced CERB, so CRB, CRSB, CRCB, they're actually withholding 10% tax at source. But for a lot of people, that's still not enough because they might have other income. So look, the whole thing's a mess. And it kind of proves that when we talk about a universal basic income, honestly, I don't trust the competence of governments and bureaucrats and politicians to come up with a system that actually works. I mean, it, it becomes a huge mess and it creates a lot of poor incentives. Like people are should be incentivized to return to work if they are able to, right? So there's an economist, Milton Friedman, I'm sorry, I'm ranting on. I'll let Jesse take no, over. But... We'll, we'll give Jesse thir- three seconds later. Yeah, yeah, you keep right? going. You keep yeah, going. So you keep going. Just to finish up, uh, uh, there, this idea has been around for a long time. Milton Friedman's a famous economist, very conservative, free market type economist. He proposed the idea of a negative income tax. It's a bit complicated, but it basically functions as a basic income, but it kind of it's done in a way that will still incentivize people to wean themselves off of this negative income tax or basic income and, and return to work. So, and, and he, but he proposes it that it would replace all the other um, programs and welfare and benefit programs that are so complicated to administer. That's the idea. So in Canada right now, if we just added a basic income onto on top of what we're already spending on effectively what is a basic income, like we just can't afford that. The federal government has a trillion dollars of debt. We're, I think, um, the, the deficit for the current year is almost $400 billion because of COVID. Like we can't afford any more spending. We have to be realistic about that. But I think a negative income tax, it could work. It's a good idea. And I, I think that is something we should look towards. But in Canada specifically, we basically already have it. And I feel like the media doesn't do a good job of, ex- of explaining that. So I'll stop. That's the end of my rant. And I'll let Jesse go. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't have to run for too long on this. But, um, you know, when I listen to you, Neil, and I like to just try to zoom out and try to keep things as simple as I can when I'm when I'm thinking about ideas and trying to explain ideas, like trying to look at what you just explained from a you know 10,000 foot view, all I hear and see are 
frictions that are created by the government, right? Because there's all this complexity to dole out and then take back whatever, you know, the different amounts. And during that process, someone's getting paid. Some bureaucrat yeah. is getting paid oh, yeah. to, to fulfill all this and review all of it. And, you know, I, one of my favorite stats from your book, I remember when, I, when you first gave it to me, I, I saw that. So Canada, I think, has um, 40,000 employees working at the CRA, whereas in the U.S., there's 80,000 employees. So they're a country 10 times as big as us in terms of population, but they employ five or we employ five times more people per capita yeah. um, working at the CRA because of how nutty our, our system is. And again, speaking, you know, from that 10,000 foot view and zooming out, we as Canadians, as taxpayers, and this is something that is not native to Canadians only, um, we forget that every time these people are getting their salaries, like we pay for that, right? Yeah, they yeah. take the money that we would want to use productively and for our own benefit as private citizens, they insist on reaching into our pockets, taking that money and using it for something that accomplishes at the end of the day, nothing that accomplishes very little. It could be yeah. far more simplified. We could all as individual citizens have more of our wealth, keep more of what we earn. Um, and then secondarily, or I guess additionally, whatever, all of this is a symptom of fiat money, right? Like we could not possibly pay these people right. if there was scarce, if money was scarce, if yeah. they had to be judicious, not judicious, but if they had to be very responsible with how they doled out money, because there was only so much to go around and they could only collect so much in taxes, right? then there would be a, a you know, a much greater impetus to keep things simple. Yeah. And to streamline things and to be efficient and effective, but because we can go into debt that's just financed by the Bank of Canada, which we don't even get to see, like they're not even sharing, you know, the details of, you know, what is the Bank of Canada balance sheet? You know, what's the budget? How much? How much did we actually spend? I yeah. think, as far as I, I heard, we, we still don't actually know a lot of the details. Which I appreciate about the U.S., we can actually get better info on what the U.S. spends than we can about Canada. Yeah, you know, Pierre Polivier. I'm not sure if I'm probably butchering his name. Um, you know, he's been hammering Christia Freeland every which way about, tell us what's going on. Tell us what's going on. Asking the same question, you know, 25 different ways and getting stonewalled. Yeah. You know, government is supposed to be the entity that they work for citizens. They are meant to be transparent in their dealings so that we can make sure that they are doing their job because they are, quote, public servants. It's right there in the term. They work for the public. They work for us. I don't work for them, Right. I, I should be able to keep my information private. I should be able to, my business dealings should are mine to deal with. If I, you know, if I break the golden rule, if I rescind, if I recant on a deal or I break my word or I injure someone, yes, that's where government is supposed to be the referee to make sure that there's fair play. Right. Um, but just, you know, they, they don't respect us. They expect us to give all of our information, everything to them. They know everything. And then we don't get to find out what they're doing. It's just completely backwards. So and, and they are entitled to do it because they control the purse strings. So, so Neil, what, where, what do you think? What's the framework? And I know you've laid it out in your book here, but can you explain what, what, how do you think we should be operating here from a tax perspective? Okay, so when we talk about this issue, there's two separate aspects of the tax system that have to be discussed. And in my book, I really only talk about one of them. So the two aspects are, number one, the actual method in which we file our tax returns, like the actual administration, right? Simple versus complex. 
But the second aspect is how much tax are we actually paying? What are what is the ideal tax rate? And what's the ideal mix of taxes, income, sales, corporate income, individual income? What I try and focus on in my book is just that first aspect, simplicity versus complexity. Because the second aspect of are we paying, are Canadian tax rates too high? Are they too low? Um, should we abolish income tax and move to a sales tax? Should we have more corporate income tax, less individual income tax? All those questions. When I was writing my book in the original version, I actually went to those issues and tried to like discuss those. But what I realized is, first of all, I'm not an expert in that because it's so complicated. And there's people who do, who spend their whole lives researching those issues. Honestly, what do I really know about that? Okay. But, and the second reason why I didn't go there is because it's fraught with political disagreement. We will never agree on the answers to those questions in, in any country. Politically, there's so much disagreement and polarization. Um, there are, you know, those who are more left-leaning want more taxes, more government spending, um, whereas those obviously more right-leaning want less taxes, less government spending. We're never going to agree. So what I realized was, well, no, First, we, we don't agree, but there is a plain right and wrong. Less taxes means less of a burden on the citizens who carry that, that you know, who pay the taxes. Oh, obviously. Right? Who, but, who the but, system is for. I know. I just want to throw that in there. Yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm with you, obviously, but I wanted to write a book that would actually appeal to those across the political spectrum that could unify Canadians. And I try to focus on in the book on the idea that our system is too complicated. We need to make it simpler. And that's an idea that everyone basically agrees with, like at least in theory, okay? So, and I actually had a few different book reviewers read every single chapter of my book and give me feedback chapter by chapter. And a couple of those people were like extreme left-wing kind of NDP type voters. And they actually really enjoyed the book. And that was my goal because when you focus on simplicity for complexity versus complexity it's an easy kind of sell that obviously Agreed. yes let's make it simpler for everyone right yes i agree so the that. system i envision um is basically like you have to divide into two groups employees and self-employed okay so for employees the t4 it's very easy okay you take our you look at your tax return okay and from page one to nine nine pages is the calculation for federal tax nine pages it's insane the tax return should be the size of your phone this should be the size of a tax return but what i envision is abolish and eliminate every single tax deduction and tax credit lower the tax rates to make up the difference the t4 becomes the tax return that's it okay so if you're an employee and you have no other income you don't have to file a tax return this is what the other countries have this type of setup. Okay. There's so is that what that that's what England is doing for England? Example? England does that. They call it pay, P-A-Y-E, pay as you earn. So just like in Canada, tax is deducted from every paycheck from every employee, right? Tax is deducted at source. And then the employer files, I don't know what they call it over there. Here we call it a T4 slip, but the employer files the T4 to the government. Done. Now, and if you if feel if you're a couple, because you explain this in your book, if you're a couple you can let your employee employer know. Well, that's what I propose. Yeah. So what I, yeah. So they don't have that in the UK. Like they still have individual tax filing, like meaning you're not taxed as a family unit. One of my pet peeves of the Canadian tax system is every individual has to file a tax return. It should really be every household 
we should be taxed as a family unit, not as an individual. It doesn't make sense. There was just an article published by a tax lawyer a few days ago in the National Post. He wrote an op-ed and I reached out to him. I told him I really liked his article. He, and in fact, in the 1960s, Canada had something called the Carter Commission. The Carter Commission was this royal commission that did a comprehensive, full review of the Canadian tax system. It took them five years. They did a big study. They released their recommendations to the government. The government followed some of the recommendations. Like, for example, they implemented a capital gains tax in 1971. Okay. But they didn't listen to some of the other recommendations. Another, another and, curious year, but that's Yeah. <laughs> oh, gold standard. Exactly. So one of the recommendations of the Carter Commission was to have family taxation. The family should be taxed as a family unit, not individuals. Um, so what I would propose is, I, I like that idea better. And by the way, when the government pays you money, when the government wants to calculate your Canada child benefits or your GST credits, they use family income, they're double dipping. So when they want money from you, it's individual income. When they have to give you money, it's family income. So because what which really proves they're really acknowledging family income is your indicator of ability to pay and and what your needs are and that's why when they calculate the Canada child benefit that you're entitled to it's based on your combined family income and family so, income you do a good job in the book too explaining I think in family income you get away from those problems of like if somebody earns a lot of income another person in the family is less income the tax right. rates are out of whack if yeah. another family has two people earning the exact same salary or exact They'll same a, income yeah they might have a high, depending on the example higher or lower tax rate even though the right. family gross income is exactly same. the same Exactly. So it's, this kind of alleviates these little problems. It also alleviates problems for every single small business owner in Canada who has a small business corporation is trying every which way possible to split income with their spouse. Like it would obviate that need, right? It would eliminate that need. And that's why a lot, most small business owners have to hire accountants and lawyers. And so it, it causes like all these distortions. Um, and, and what's also kind of like, inconsistent in our tax system, I talk about this also, is that a lot of tax credits and deductions can actually be shared and claimed by either spouse. So the government's kind of acknowledging, yes, family income is an indicator of your ability to pay tax. And we do allow certain credits and deductions to be shared across by either spouse. But then you still have to file two tax returns. Why? Just combine it. Come on. You, so, also, bring up, you also bring up the point that tax credits are almost being used as a political game. Oh like my we're, God! We're this, and I and I love that you brought well, that Neil, up. Neil Neil alluded to that at the beginning of of the show here, right? Where he said that you know, depending on which regime is in power, that they're going to you know levy this new tax or that new tax, or yeah. maybe repeal something. But I'm sure that's pretty rare. But yeah. it's it's a political gambit, right? Oh yeah. They use Poli taxes as a tool to try to win votes. Oh, we're going to apply this new tax tax this way because yeah. this will satisfy our base. It has nothing to do with doing what's best for people. And it's driven by how can I get more votes, which yeah. is obviously. Absolutely. You know, politicians, politicians love tax credits and deductions. I'll, I'll tell you a really funny story about that. So, um, and both, by the way, both parties, like both major parties, conservatives and liberals are equally guilty of this. So for 100%. example, in the Harper years, the conservative government implemented all these new tax credits, child fitness tax credit, child arts tax credit, public transit tax credit, um, and a, a home renovation tax credit. Like it didn't add, there's so many. And 
And then when the liberals, when Trudeau took power, he eliminated all of those, okay? But then he put in his own tax credits, a tax credit for teachers to claim school supplies and a climate action incentive tax credit and all these other ones. So it just bothers me so much. Like if they wanna lower our tax bills, just lower the tax rate. And then that could apply to everyone. And, and it's easy and simple and, and you don't have to do anything. And I think to anyone benefit. listening to this, you're not saying get rid of tax, like for anyone listening to this at, at this iteration, because I know what Jesse's, Jesse's going to respond no, to this, you, but you're not saying get rid of taxes because someone might listening to you for the first time might say, well, how are we going right. to pay for hospitals and roads? And, right. And, yeah. And Let's so, ca- hold, hold on. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just get my two cents very quickly. And so it's not that I think we need to get rid of all tax. It's that we need just radically different taxes and that we can be extremely effective with very low taxes and that a lot of industries that are subsidized by taxes can function in a free market and don't need to be socialized right. and subsidized. Like a lot education, healthcare, I know that's a big step, especially for Canadians to even contemplate the idea. A lot of this really can function and function really well if we leave, if we leave the market to its own devices but to get there is a stretch for a lot of people. Yeah, so what I'm proposing, like, and this is what I tried to explain, there's two different aspects to this. I'm not talking about abolishing tax, although it would be nice, but that's not, I'm present, the, the, the simplification reforms that I'm talking about can be done in a way that's actually revenue neutral to the government. So we could keep everything the same, the government budget could be exactly the same, but it's the method in which they're collecting tax would be simpler. And our tax return filing process would be simpler. We could all pay the exact same amount of tax. The government could collect the exact same amount of revenue. So let's leave abolishing the government and abolishing tax. We could leave that to a whole other discussion, but which would be an interesting discussion. And oh, uh, Jesse, that's, just that's, that's way down the road. Anyway. Yeah, 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 that's yeah, not, yeah, coming, any, that's yeah, not yeah. coming anytime yeah, yeah. soon. Which would be an interesting yeah. discussion. Just to map out, because I think a lot of people right. have those thoughts, but right. nobody I, has the framework or context for which to analyze it. But yes, right. let's leave it. So yeah, Neil, that's yes, too much yes. for today. So, so, Neil, you keep going with what you were saying. And, Sorry. And I, by the way, I love talking about that and thinking about that. And in fact, that's, and I wanted to include that in this book about just like- It would have been dr- too much, yeah. Yeah, let's just, yeah, to, to dramatically reduce the size and scope of government. But I realize again, that that's so, there's so much political like controversy with that. And it's, it's a lot more complicated than we think. So I thought, you know what? Let's leave that. Let's create a revenue neutral plan just to simplify the administration and the compliance burden of our tax system. That's the idea. So of, I just want to be clear on, on your thinking. It's to eliminate a lot of just the kind of bureaucracy in it, the tax filing, simplify it. If you're an employee, yes. your T4 is basically your tax return. Exactly. We can make up for all the credits by lowering the tax rates. So exactly. We don't have to go through this whole credit system. Exactly. I, want, I want you to talk about two things that I think are maybe top of mind for a lot of people right now. Um, and it's working from, first of all, I love your example in the book about, can I deduct my clothes for my job? If my job requires me to wear, wear, wear a certain type of clothes, I have thought that my whole working career, right. my entire working career, I'm like, I'm only buying these clothes because I have to wear these at this job. Can this not be a tax deduction? So I love that you right. put that in there, but I'd love to get your thoughts on working from home. What do Canadians have to concern themselves of when they're working from home as far as a tax deduction? Because a lot of people are you know telling me oh i'm going to turn my part of my house into a home office and i'm going to get all these you know tax deductions or whatever and the second one i want you to comment on is how about if you rent part of your house what do okay. people have to think about because more and more people are yeah. renting an area of their house you know it's another stream of income yeah. can you talk about those two things sure and and, and this is why it bothers me so much to- like talking about these issues because 
we shouldn't have to, or, or, like the taxes should be simple enough. We shouldn't have a home office deduction. We shouldn't have any deductions, just lower the rate. And I actually, like with COVID, the government to their credit created a simplified version of the home office deduction for employees, because I think I, I looked it up, something like 5 million Canadian employees who are, are working from home now who did not before. So 5 million individual Canadians are going to be claiming a new deduction that they've never claimed before, the home office expense. They're not used to it. It's very complicated because the employer would have to provide them with a T2200 form, right? That they have to keep on file. And then they have to do a complicated calculation and fill out the form properly. And they'll have probably have to hire an accountant. So you're going to have 5 million people looking for accountants. I mean, it's such a disaster. Can't, so, can't you just take a percentage of your home that you're saying you're using as a home office and deduct that as a percentage off your utility bills? And Yeah, exactly. You have to claim a percentage based on the square footage of the but office. But do you need that form from your employer to do that? No. So there's two different things. Okay. So with COVID, they made changes to it. Okay. So for before COVID, if you wanted to claim the home office expense or any expenses as an employee, your employer must fill out and sign and give you a copy of the T2200 form. And you just have to keep that on file. Okay. In case CRA asks to see it. Then when you file your tax return, there's a statement called T777. That's a statement of employment expenses. And you fill that out where you fill out the square footage of your home office and divide by the total square footage of your house. And then you could claim your utilities and some repairs and maintenance. You cannot claim mortgage interest, okay? But you can claim your rent. So it's a little complicated. And if you're in commissions, you can also claim a portion of your insurance and property tax. Now, people who are self-employed, it's different. They can claim mortgage interest, they can claim insurance, property tax, they can claim it all. So it, it's, a, it's like very kind of wacky. But the point is during COVID, they made a simple version of this home office deduction where you can claim a standard, basically $2 per day that you work from home to $400. And you could just claim as a deduction flat and you don't have to keep any receipts or any documents or do anything. So that's very nice. I like that they did it and they made a simple option. But for some people, they feel, you know, I'm entitled to more than that. So they're going to want to claim the old fashioned, more detailed version of it. And you'll have to keep all your receipts. And it's just so ridiculous. So um, before I talk about renting out a part of your house, like base and rental, like my wife and I, we rent out our basement. Um, I just want to tell you a story in general about tax credits. So a few years ago, I wrote an article. It was published on the postmillennial.com. And it was an open letter to the prime minister and minister of finance. And it was like basically a long rant about how ridiculous our tax system is. And in it, I criticized the idea of tax credits and deductions. And I gave an example of the child fitness and child arts tax credit. And I called them silly because they're only worth for each individual. Like if you can claim a $500 credit, it's only worth 15% of that $75 or whatever it is. It's not a lot, right? So what I claimed was, the, the compliance burden on people claiming these credits, they have to keep the receipts for every fitness program their child is in, enrolled in. The CRA asks to see the receipts and then you have to send them to CRA for $75 yeah, extra and refund. How much is that, and how much cost on both you and the government, right? Exactly. Is, is involved in that whole process. It's so ridiculous. And what I said was, look, I have a daughter. I want her to be physically active and I'll, I want to put her in soccer and all these fitness programs, but I don't need a tax credit to encourage me to do that. But that's the attitude and, and philosophy of those in power. They feel they need to micromanage our lives yes, and provide yes, us with yes, these incentives. Yes. So I got a phone call after that article. A few days later, 
I got a phone call from someone introducing herself to me. She was very nice. And we had a very nice civil discussion, but she said, she says, I invented that tax credit. I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, I was on the policy team of Stephen Harper's government. And I came, I proposed this tax credit, child fitness and child arts. And this was modeled after some of the European countries that they, they incentivize families. We want people to be physically active. We want these kids to be active. We want to encourage their health and physical activity. So we put in this tax credit. And I said to her, look, I want children to be physically active also, right? I agree with that objective, but I disagree with you using and mucking up the individual tax filing system to try and accomplish that objective. And she says, I, I resent that you called them silly tax credits. And I said, <laughs> I stand by it. They are silly, but we had a very respectful discussion. And I said to her, look. Good for you. Your book is named accurately, The Grumpy Accountant. You know? I mean <laughs> yeah. that as a compliment. I really do. I yeah. mean that as a compliment. You're so passionate about this stuff. Tell us what you said to her. Tell us what you no, said to her. No, I, I said to her, look, if you want children to be physically active, I agree with that too. But find another way to educate Canadians that they have to put their kids in fitness activities. Most people know that, right? But this is how people think in government. Like they think that the masses of citizens won't act as responsible adults. We see that with the responses to COVID with lockdowns. They think we won't act responsibly if they don't just lock us in their homes. So, uh, so this sort of segues, if I can, Neil, into a little bit of what I talked about in my book about how we use you know, money and by extension, the tax system as a tool for yes. social engineering, right? Absolutely, are, yeah. Right, government, this little entity, which supposedly represents the interests of everybody right. is saying, we have got, got together our little you know, consortium. We've decided this is the course, this is what's best for everyone. We are going to nudge people in this direction. Exactly, it's called nudge credits. comment. They call it yeah, nudge not, comment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but they have decided that, okay, we're going to push you this way, this way, this way. And by doing that, you are in effect, you're creating an impediment to what just free markets and free choices would lead to. And like right. you said, I don't need a tax credit to decide that I want to be healthy. Like right. I right now, you know, I want to be playing basketball. I want to be doing different, you know, that's my sport of choice. Yeah. Um, I don't need a tax credit to go play exactly. basketball. I, yeah. I love the game. I love yeah. being active. I feel good. I teach, you know, I talk about this with different people, you know, we all enjoy it. And mm -hmm. so that's, that is part of what spreads the awareness, the experience of doing it. Yeah. But you create and the tax incentive and then you create all this friction that goes along with it. Right. Exactly. And also it, and the unintended consequences, but yeah, anyway. And, and the other problem is like, and this is what I said to her, I'm like, if you have a child fitness tax credit, why not an adult fitness tax credit? Adults need to be physically active too. Why not a gym? And all my clients asked me, can I claim my gym membership? Is there a tax credit? Why not a tax credit for healthy eating? Every time you buy fruits and vegetables, keep the receipt. We'll give you a tax <laughs> Yeah, exactly. All, like, where does it end? You're I mean, Exactly. So you're you're taking the logical extension of her argument and saying, okay, if that's right. what you really think, yeah, then let's ridiculous. play it all the way out. Let's play your logic you know, all you, the way you, out. And you, when what, you do that- It's insane. It, and it that's why we have 120 tax credits and deductions now, because they, they want to micromanage every life event has yeah. a tax credit and, or what, a deduction. What's right? interesting, listening, listening and, to and you And it guys. takes away from the self-responsibility, right? Like at the end yeah. of the day, they can't, they can't, there is not, a, there is nothing they can do, right? They can't make every decision for you. Right. Make, make, micromanaging people's lives removes the burden of responsibility that we want to promote people to take. We want people to be responsible for themselves. And, and then people become used to it. They, and then they people become, become used to it. Dependent on government, 
on all these incentives. So if, if like what I'm proposing is so radical to Canadians, what do you mean get rid of tax credits and deductions? But I need my disability tax credit. I need my medical expense tax credit. I need my donation tax credit. I need my childcare deduction. Yes, yeah. I need my RRSP deduction. But when I frame it in the sense that we're going to lower the tax rates to make up the difference. So your tax bill will be the same. You just won't have to file a tax return. It'll be so much easier, right? So I'm going to get both of you guys banging the desk at the same time. And then I'm going to freeze <laughs> that shot and frame it for, for you guys. Cause that was, that was awesome. So listen, listening to you guys is making me think that it's interesting if the government just really, you know, collapses on itself because the next step in this is going to be central bank digital currencies. So if the central banks come out with central bank digital currencies and push these onto Canadians, then we get, you know, I think Neil, you called it nudge, nudge economics or something. Nudgeonomics or whatever. Nudgeonomics. To me, that's the, that's the behavioral economics at its max, because then, you know, we, the, the government, the central bank and the government together can say, all right, Neil, we're going to give you this universal income, minimum income, whatever it is, but your, your age is, you know, you're in your thirties. We'll give you a little bit of interest. If Tom gets it, he's in his late forties, we're going to give him a negative interest rate. And we're going to layer on this other layer of behavioral kind of control. And I, I just saying that word, I just saying it like that freaks me out, by the way, that just yeah. freaked me out when I just said that, by the way, so forgive me, but, but then you have this tax code structured in a certain way, but then you're going to have this layer of money that if this comes out the way I think they're going to react, we're, I wonder if the government just at one point just literally collapses on its own weight of all of this mess. And, and Neil, I do want to get you to answer the rent question. So I'm literally just oh, listening yeah. to you guys speak. I'm like, wow, this is, going to get a little bit crazier before it Look, gets any better. In, in yes. the early 1990s, in 1993, 1994, the, go the federal government of Canada um, almost needed a bailout loan from the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, because they were so heavily in debt. One third of government revenue was going towards interest costs. Okay, one third at that point. So it was actually the liberal government back then uh, Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin was the finance minister. Within two years, they balanced the budget, okay? Um, and they started paying off debt and they, and they averted the need for that IMF bailout loan. So they, it's very easy for government to get to that point where basically the more debt they have, the more um, of government revenue that's being spent on interest costs. And when that gets to a certain point, like right now, I actually just wrote an article about this and it's gonna be published in National Post this week um, about, about this very topic, about interest. And um, so, but basically like, like Ontario right now, I think the third largest, it's either third or fourth largest line item in the budget is interest. So it goes healthcare, education. I think there might be one more and then interest, $11 billion a year. That was before COVID and the federal government in 2019-20 uh, fiscal year, spent about $24 billion on interest, okay? They spent less money. I think military defense was $23 billion, okay? So we're spending, and equalization payments to provinces were $23 billion, and Canada Child Benefits is $24 billion. So we're spending more money in interest than we are on military defense. So that's the problem when you start incurring too much debt. The whole system kind of, like, if we get to that point where one third of the budget is being spent on interest, so that means 33 cents of every tax dollar you spend is just going to pay interest. It's unsustainable because we in Canada, this is the problem with the, we, we, 
we demand so much from our government, as Jesse was saying, healthcare, education, basically government's providing, I mean, like at a certain point I joke, why not just make the tax rate a hundred percent government will just collect all the money and they'll just do everything for us. They'll build us our houses. They'll provide grocery delivery right to your door every week. You'll get groceries, right? Like at a certain point, like where does it end? And Canadians, we need to have this discussion of like, what should be the role of government in our society? And even when conservative governments take power, I don't really see much change in terms of government services. Like, it's not like we all of a sudden, when the conservative government takes power, we abolish our healthcare system and go to completely private education. So um, it seems like all the parties are kind of aligned and they kind of govern like in the same way, honestly. But Jesse, Jesse, did you want to comment on that? I was reminded as you were talking, I remember when I was working at Macquarie Private Wealth, uh, I worked there from 2011 to 2013. So when I was there, I think I was doing some analysis in, in you know, the middle of my tenure there, whatever, let's call it 2012. I remember looking up on the, it, this is for the, this is a US statistic, but I remember looking up that in 2012, let's call it um, the US government, the federal government paid something like $350 billion in interest. I was going through the history of the federal government's interest payments and in the late 90s, so I think I had figured out that 15 years prior, they also paid $350 billion a year in interest. The difference was between you know, 97 and 2012, the total amount of debt had like doubled or tripled, but the interest rate, right? They just manipulated downwards. Right. And so, you know, we're it's 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 playing out everywhere, right? This is not, I don't think, unique to Canada, but we have manipulated the monetary and financial system such that interest even on our bloated debt is still is still third or fourth as you said on that list can remain in my opinion you know that's low only because interest rates are negligible interest rates are non-existent but right if we had by the central banks the central banks fit. are artificial. yeah yeah well they manipulate money and the interest they, they do it all right so yeah. they can they can just massage anything they want right um it's it's just it just creates more and more distortions of what's happening in economic reality. What's happening? I I I, I was just reading right now. So Pierre uh, Polivier had tweeted out that in a study of 800 years of debt crises, Harvard's uh, Kenneth Rogoff identifies five predictors of of them. So number one, slowing output, right? So I think we're very clearly seeing slowing output right now. Number two, asset inflation, right? Any any asset of any kind is pumping. Uh, three, sustained debt buildups. You know, check that box. Number four, rising household leverage um, seems to be the case here as well. And then number five, big current account deficits. So Canada checks all five boxes of what predicts um, a debt crisis, right? And it's, it's, there's going to be all these debts have to be repaid. The entire, not the entire, but one of the big reasons we pay taxes is because we siphon off a portion of it to go to that debt obligation. Right. And it's, it's just so problematic. If you can hold off the repayment, you know, I think some people listening to this might say, hey, well, hey guys, you know what? I have a family to feed. I have rent to pay. I don't care if the third, fourth line item is interest. Um, I just got to make it through the day. But, but what I would like to express is that the policies that make interest that high on our budget are affecting every Canadian, whether they know it or not. Right, in yes. prices of assets, like we're in the real estate market. I can tell you here in, in the greater Toronto area right now that we see, you know, my, one of my favorite current examples about two weeks ago, we had a townhouse for sale in Kitchener, 188 viewing requests in one weekend. They were trying to book appointments every 10 minutes. 
We had a semi-detached on somebody in our team, 51 offers. We had another property on the west side of Toronto, 46 offers. So when you see the government, when they drop interest rates the way they are, and the easy money, it it creates this situation where I think the, the typical Canadian looks around and says, well, why are house prices going up? And I can't really get ahead. And it creates this little bit of unrest, this unconscious unrest oh, yeah. in, well, in, in us. And then it creates this real estate market where people think the prices are going up and nobody really associate, associates it with the value of the dollar going down. Mm-hmm. So if you're listening to this and you know it's not something you, you think, oh, what are these guys talking about? It really does affect all of us. And to me, Nick and I have called it for a long time, um, Jesse, Neil, I don't know if you know this, but we've even written a report on it off our website. We call it the destruction of the middle class. That, yeah. you know, my, my parents immigrated here yeah. for very definite reasons. And I think Canada still has a great middle class, fortunately, compared to many parts of the world, let's face it. Mm-hmm. But we're witnessing something and a change in the social fabric here. And it's yeah. because of a lot of what, you know, Jesse, what you're writing about in your book, Neil, what you're writing about here. Yeah. And it's important for Canadians to be aware of this stuff. And anyway, the, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll stop. But it's just, it just, it's, it's crazy what we're seeing. In everywhere. No, it, it, it's interesting you say that about the destruction of the middle class, because in our tax system, really the burden of individual income tax really falls on the middle income people because the higher, the very, very high income people, they do pay a lot of tax, but they, but let's be honest, it's affordable for them. Like if your income's $400,000, you can afford your tax bill, no problem. Right. And then the lowest income people, like let's say in Canada, the bottom 65% of income earners earn below $50,000 a year. So like income below 40,000 is still taxed at a pretty reasonable low rate. So people below 30, 40,000 income, they are paying income tax. But if you take into account the GST credits that they're getting, the Canada child benefits they're getting, they're actually not paying that much. And Statistics Canada has those stats, but it's the middle income people who they really feel the burden of their tax bill because they're the ones kind of being squeezed. They're paying tax and they're not getting back from the government like the kind of child benefits they get are much lower because their income's creeping up, but, and their tax bill is creeping up. Like we have, as soon as you hit um, individual income of like over 90,000, you start paying about 38, 39% on every dollar above that. That's a lot. That's a lot. And if you hit a 150,000 of individual income from 150 to 200, you're paying 48% on those dollars. And once you're above 200, you're going to get to over 50%. But $200,000 of income, it doesn't mean you're rich. Because remember, you might be supporting a family of four or five on that with a big mortgage in the GTA, 6 million Canadians live in the GTA, and they're really struggling. So 200, the highest tax bracket in Canada is kicking in at $216,000 of income. You pay over 53% on 216. It was only 10 years ago, where in Ontario, the top bracket, the top rate didn't kick in until 400,000 of income. And the top rate was 46% above that. So today, what, what over the past 10 years, they've raised the rates from 46% to 53%, the top rate, and they lowered the threshold. Instead of kicking it above 400,000, it kicks in at 216,000. And that, it, it really, it hurts these people. So it's, it kind of goes with what you're saying that like, People don't, it, it really does affect everyone, even people who are receiving CERB, receiving from the government and not paying into it, it affects them too, because eventually, if people, 
the attitude, this is what happens over the long term of a welfare state, which we have, eventually the attitude becomes, people become, they feel that the government must provide for them. Yeah. But, but what happens is more and more people feel that way. It's not just the lowest income people, it's the middle income people and even high income people. Like they want also, because why shouldn't they, right? Like everyone. So, so then the government can't afford it anymore because they have to give something to everyone. We're going to have no, to... Con- and Neil, nobody wants to pay for it. We have the, we have so much more to cover here. This is okay, this sorry. is really great. No, 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 no. Yeah. I, I I apologize for for cutting you short there. I just need sure. you in the interest of time here because I want you to answer that rent question because oh. I know that's something going on. And then we'll yeah, we'll bring some of it home. But we're going to continue these conversations. Okay. So people who rent out a portion of your house, you're allowed to do that, but you have to be careful with a few things. First of all, it's taxable income. You have to declare the income. And you get to claim expenses. So you can claim a portion of your property taxes, your mortgage interest, your insurance, your repairs and maintenance. So you're allowed to claim expenses off of the income. But you have to be careful because you don't want to jeopardize your house being your principal residence. If you claim that you're renting out, let's say, more than half of your house or a very large percentage of your house, then you won't be able to claim the principal residence exemption when you sell your house. And then you have to pay a capital gains tax when you sell your house. So you don't want to go there. So you want to make sure that you're only renting out a portion of your house, okay, a smaller portion of it. And if you do a major renovation to get that rental up to uh, actually being able to rent out, you might be jeopardizing your principal residence status. So it's important to watch out for that. Also, if you're doing Airbnb, as opposed to just having like a long-term tenant that pays monthly rent that has a lease for a year or more, Airbnb, if you're doing like 30 days or less at a time, there are, it might have to be reported as business income instead of rental income. It could be a little complicated. And if you hit $30,000, you might have to register for HST and collect HST on the Airbnb rental income. So what I would suggest to anyone who's thinking of or who is renting out a portion of their house you should really speak to a tax professional, not me. I'm too grumpy. I'm not taking new clients, but <laughs> find someone who could make sure you have this set up properly because you, you, you don't want to end up in a situation where all of a sudden you can't claim the principal residence exemption when you sell your house. Thank you for that. So guys, we're going to have to get together again because there's a lot more to explore here. I feel like we have just scratched the surface on some things I'd like your opinion, Neil, on Jesse, your opinion on. So I want to thank you for taking the time to do this. I really do. I mean, I think more conversations like this need to happen in Canada. And Neil, the fact that you're writing articles and you're getting phone calls from different people who are doing the tax credit. Yeah. I wish I was listening to that phone call. Oh, but, that uh, yeah. but yeah, so thank you. And, and Jesse, to continue to promote your work. I mean, I think you guys are really serving a need here in Canada. So for us to get the opportunity to chat together and share this, I'm very grateful for it. So thank you. And so Neil, for your book, is it Amazon the best place to go? The Grumpy Accountant. One it's set up tax bureau's practical plan to fix Canada's senselessly complicated tax system. I yeah. love it. So yeah, is yeah. that the best place? Where, where, where would you like to direct people for, for this one? Yeah, amazon.ca um, for the paperback. The ebook and audio book are available everywhere. So if you want to listen to me rant for five hours, you could listen Did you to the read audio. the book? You, yeah, so I narrated book. it. Okay. Yeah, it was awesome. a lot of fun. Um, it drove me crazy, but yeah. Um, if people don't want to use Amazon, I have some people who like they boycott Amazon, contact me through my website, grumpyaccountant.ca. So that's grumpyaccountant.ca and I'll make arrangements with you. Awesome. Awesome. And Jesse, where would you like to direct people? Yeah. So I'll just make one quick comment and then I'll do the direction as well. Um, 
but you know, everything we're talking about, it's, it's just symptoms of a broken system, right? Like we push people around because there is this power structure in place that allows them to be pushed around. So the whole premise of my book is that let's take the power back, right? The power belongs to each and all of us equitably. And the best way to do that in my mind is to, you know, I don't want to say defund the system because that's not what this is about. It's about choosing a better alternative. So for me, you know, I don't want to save money in the fiat system because I know I'm going to, my, my wealth, my energy, you know, that the value of my earnings is going to be depleted if I continue to play their crazy games. The value so of I, your time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I choose to opt out. You know, I choose to save in Bitcoin. Magic Internet Money, a book about Bitcoin is my book. We've, uh, we've discussed it uh, on the previous podcast, but uh, yeah, you can, can buy it at magicbitcoinbook.com or on Amazon. Um, and if you've bought it, please do leave a review. So cool. Thank Thanks you. guys. Cause yeah. there is so what I wanted to explore is Neil, when you brought up the point about, um, smaller communities taking care of all of us, you know, it reminds me of something I'd like to discuss because I was, you know, I, I grew up with some, um, relatives over in Europe and I, I saw them live in villages and how they all kind of supported each other. And then, you know, I don't think we could pull exactly that off with such a population base, but I'd like to explore just that thinking with you and Jesse, your point about just the tax system and how much taxes and could we privatize some things. And so more to talk about with you guys. So we'll leave it here, but uh, really thank, thanks both of you really, yeah, really appreciate this a lot. This was, this was a lot of fun. Thank of you fun. very much. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank yeah thanks Tom. It was great. Again, it was great. Hey everybody, so hopefully you enjoyed that episode with Neil and Jesse. You can learn more about Neil's work at www.grumpyaccountant.ca. That's grumpyaccountant.ca. You can find Neil on Twitter. His Twitter handle is thegrumpyaccu1. So we will definitely put a link to that in the show notes because you're not going to remember that. But if you want to try, it's thegrumpyaccu1. And accu is A-C-C-O-U, the number one. So if you want to find him on Twitter, you can find him that way. And Jesse, of course, you can find him on Twitter at um, jberjay, at J-J-A-Y-B-E-R-J-A-Y, jberjay on Twitter. You can also find information about his book at magicbitcoinbook.com. That's www.magicbitcoinbook.com. Thanks to both these guys for coming on the show and sharing that information. If you are listening to this and you want more real estate information for yourself on how to get started in real estate investing, you're not sure what to do or where to look or how to analyze the market, you can get a whole bunch of information from us at rockstarinnercircle.com. That's it for now. Until next time, your life, your terms. <laughs>